Episode 6. Chess, Not Checkers. Pain patients and drug addicts are alike in the fact that they are both two groups of human beings, often misunderstood, that are in complete and utter pain and wanting desperately to escape that pain. And they are both looking to score. Score. Yes, they are looking to score a victory against pain and its enablers. Now that the pain patient's prescription medications have been taken away and their lives teeter on the brink of destruction, many of them are looking for any way possible to stop the intractable pain they're up against. You're talking about people's lives, their livelihoods, their quality of life, the risk of them they're going to go self-medicate. That's and, and we predicted, by the way, when, when this started happening, pain doctors predicted people were going to go to the street and self-medicate. And what's happened? Wow, we were right. It's not rocket science, by the way. You don't have to be especially bright to know that. People are going to do what they need to do to get out of pain. That is that's one of the primary drivers in the human brain, in any animal brain, you don't have to be human. You escape pain. A, a dog will chew its leg off if it's in a trap, right? You do anything you need to. You're going to go to the street. If you have people who are giving you drugs cheap on the street, you're going to do that. If they if they give you pills that are stamped Norco or Percocet, you're going to buy those. You're not going to think, could they be laced with fentanyl and kill me? No, because you're desperate. So, so... Some of the increase we've seen in overdoses have been legitimate pain patients legitimately seeking pain relief. Drug addicts, too, are in pain. Some of them also have chronic pain that is physical in nature, but many more are in mental anguish, mostly due to poverty, poor living conditions, limited or no access to medical care, unstable or non-existent family structure, and worse. The opioid crisis was created by street drugs and by diverted drugs that went through pill mills in the period between two, the year 2000 and 2010. And what is killing people generally, increasingly more of them, is not the exposure to opioids. It's the refusal to prescribe on the one hand and the efficiency of drug cartels that are marketing very effectively across the border to people who are in social desperation because of unemployment and economic conditions that proceeded out of the 2008-2009 recession. And basically what we're seeing is not a crisis of opioid addiction from exposure, it's a crisis of social hopelessness. It also turns out when you look carefully at the relationships that before the year 2010, there is a very weak connection between opioid prescribing rates versus opioid overdose-related deaths on a U.S. state-to-state basis. It's a very weak uh, relationship, and what it says is, yes, there's a little bit of increase in uh, deaths in states where prescribing is highest, but it's not really very much, and it does not account for anywhere nearly the amount of uh, increase that has actually occurred during this period. 
we also find that after 2010, when the formulation of OxyContin was changed by federal rules, the rate of prescriptions for OxyContin dropped to 33% or so, and the rate of deaths attributed to heroin tripled. There's some interesting relationship implied by that. Since 2010, the rate of prescribing for opioids has dropped to levels that we haven't seen since the year 2000. They've dropped by 40%. In the same period, the rate of deaths involving opioids have doubled. So what we have again is a a set of numbers that are published that we know very well are correct, at least as correct as they can be made, which tell us that prescribing isn't causing our opioid crisis. It's street drugs, dummy. And yet the CDC goes right on assuming that it's opioid prescriptions. And they go right on trying to restrict opioid prescriptions in a manner that is harming patients by the thousands. The solution to drug abuse, overdose, and deaths attributed to street drugs is easy, some say. Just simply stop the flow of drugs into the U.S. Well, that solution becomes somewhat of a pipe dream and not so simple when you realize that powerful opportunists and those determined to capitalize on society's pain are the ones responsible for both creating the opioid crisis and failing to end it. Okay, so maybe the war on drugs won't be won by the good guys. What can be done so that legitimate pain patients and their advocates win their battle and stop being treated like pawns in this game? Chagnon had this to say. People who who feel like they're being really effective in advocating for public health have to listen to the other side of the story and the fact that we have not made a dent. In fact, it continues to get worse. The opioid, or I should say the drug overdose epidemic, continues to get worse. We lose more and more people. That was even before COVID. Then people who are using legitimate medications for pain. Let us, who know what we're doing, do our job. We we trained for this. We trained a lot of years for this. A lot of us have been in practice for a long time. And we need to also get to the, the generations coming out of training now, because right now they're getting brainwashed into thinking these things are inherently evil. There's There's nothing inherently evil by the way, I, and I say that as it, I have an interesting background is that um, when I was at UCSF, I was uh, at the pain management center and I was uh, one of my hats I wore was director of, of clinical research. And I did two studies on thalidomide of all things in uh, pain conditions. Now, thalidomide, if you'd think of any drug that was inherently evil, thalidomide would come, you know, easily to your mind. But the fact is, is that you can use thalidomide safely if you if you screen people appropriately and and it's a lot harder to use than opioid opioids are much easier but i can tell you in both conditions we tested people wanted to stay on thalidomide 
because it helped their pain. And I, and I won't bore you with all of the reasons why we used it and why we tested it, but, but it, it's, it's the idea that there's something inherently evil with a medication. If you don't know all of the details about it, if you have somebody who knows what they're doing, we absolutely can use something um, surprisingly effectively and we have for a long time. And what has also happened is we we have, you know, the, the, there there's the ongoing, you know, uh, statements being made that there's, there's no research about how uh, safe and effective it is beyond six weeks. Well, you know what? There are a lot of people who wrote about their experiences. You know, we have Melzack and Wall who were the godfathers of pain decades ago, and their book is still the Bible of pain management. And, and they wrote passionately about the use of these medications and the underuse because of unfounded fear. We have lots of data that people have conveniently forgotten or just don't bother to look for because they're hearing the current narrative. And we need to have people to start thinking for themselves. In the younger generation, before my generation in 10 or 15 years, retires, we need to have people who are going to say, you know, you have a kidney stone. Yeah. You know what? I'm not just going to give you Tylenol for a kidney stone or, oh, you broke your leg. I'm not just going to tell you to take Motrin for your broken leg. I mean, you know, there are just some things that are really horrific. We look back, look at Albert Schweitzer. Albert Schweitzer, I still have his quote hanging in my office. He said, pain is a more terrible Lord over mankind than even death itself. That was Albert Schweitzer. And, and, and as long as we have, have been dealing with medicine, healthcare, we are supposed to relieve suffering. We're, that is our job. That is our primary job. We can do that far often than we can cure people. And we are failing miserably at it. And we are making it sound like we should be proud of it while we're doing it. And there is something sick about that. So if somebody comes up with a non-opioid, great pain reliever, wonderful. I'm a huge fan of a lot of other medications, trust me. But to to single-handedly just toss away an entire group of medication because they're, it's inappropriate, because politicians have told us so, or the DEA, or medical boards, or whatever, that's a travesty. It's a crime. It's something that we should have all been up in arms about. But now it's too late. Now, now we're working. We're really working from behind the eight ball, and and what I hope is somebody somewhere in power will listen, and and really pay attention to enough stories from people across the gamut of this field to say, you know what, maybe we got it wrong. Just like cannabis, cannabis was the gateway drug for decades, right? I mean, everything it was it was evil incarnate for you know as long as I could remember until like 10 years ago. And then it was great for everything that ailed you. And now opioids are the thing that's evil. It's, we were wrong about cannabis. It's not for everything, but it's not the evil thing that we thought it was. It's the same for opioids. It's the same for anti-seizure medications, for antidepressants, for anti-inflammatories, even for Tylenol. You want to talk to the liver transplant units across the country? Ask them what causes the most liver transplant problems or a lot of them. It's Tylenol overdoses. But you don't ever hear about that. So we, we need people who are influencers in the, the field of policy and law enforcement 
because that's where we're losing people. I have had so many wonderful colleagues get tagged by medical boards and the DEA who are wonderful physicians. And uh, we've come close to losing them because of what happened. And they won't see pain patients anymore. They won't prescribe at all. And and they are absolutely wonderful people. I would not hesitate to go to myself or send a family member to. And this is happening all over the country. And it's disgusting. It's not American. It is disgusting. Lawhorn believes that medical academies and associations can be helpful in walking back the travesty implemented by PROP and the CDC. June of last year, the American Medical Association published an open letter, 17-page letter, to the author who was the principal author uh, of the group that wrote the 2016 guidelines. And in that letter, this, the president of the AMA told her, her name is Deborah Howery, that it is now clear that the CDC guidelines have been responsible for harming large numbers of patients. And that is a direct quote. It is also clear that trying to solve the opioid crisis by limiting access to pain-relieving medication is a mythology. The term mythology was actually used by the AMA. They also advocated that, that the CDC should go on record publicly advocating for the repeal of every state law that places a hard limit on opioid prescription rates or duration. And when you think about it, that's a revolution. Because what the AMA is saying to the CDC is, guys, you've got it desperately, desperately wrong. You've got to fix this. About the same time, AAFP and five other uh, major medical academies or associations who represent over half of all U.S. doctors went on record in March or in April of 2019, basically saying that it is time to remove political interference from the practice of evidence-based medicine. And it is time to remove law enforcement officers from doctors' offices. Now, those are also revolutionary statements, but they're not being made by advocates like me. They're being made by people who have been charged with representing the concerns and interests of the profession of medicine. That is, again, very, very interesting and I think very, very alerting. The USCDC declared that they were going to do a, an update to the guidelines that they wrote in 2016. And as a part of that update, they were going to appoint a, an opioid work group of qualified physicians and a couple of patient advocates to oversee and review the recommendations that would be generated by this update. They appointed five writers to actually do the update. They established that the opioid work group would review their, the product of the rewrite writers at midterm before this document was again reconsidered and then submitted probably by the end of this year to the Federal Register for public comment. On July 16th, they held a meeting 
of the Board of Scientific Counselors for the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control with the opioid work group because the opioid work group basically reported to the, the BSC and the CDC website has both the report that the, that the opioid work group made and the outline recommendations that were made as a part of the rewrite. What is fascinating in all of this is that when you read the report, and you don't have to read it very carefully to find these outcomes, major concerns were expressed by multiple members of the opioid work group that pertinent information and studies had been missed by the writers of the rewrite, and that their recommendations very closely resemble those of the 2016 guidelines, only they're now expanded to treat not only chronic pain, but acute pain. During the public commentary for two hours, there were four speakers from the Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing, and they were a few people that wanted to make a special point on the you know, for, for their particular professional organization. But I'd have to guess that over 40 of those who commented during the two minutes each that they had were basically saying to the listeners and the Board of Scientific Counselors and the opioid work group, guys, you messed up big time. And you not only messed up, your mess up was clearly with the knowledge that you were ignoring a huge amount of information that contradicts the position you've derived. Burn this thing to the ground and start over. You mess up in a manner you can't repair. If they were doing it the way I recommended, they would move toward complete repudiation and withdrawal of the entire CDC guideline exercise because it's very clearly wrong. And I would add one more factor to this. The people who did the writing, the five of them, are basically public health hacks. None of them is board certified or experienced in community practice in pain management. None of them has regularly treated patients as part of a practice in which they could observe the outcomes of opioid prescribing themselves. If they had been, they would not have messed up to the degree that they have messed up uh, in, the, in the formulation of, of their recommended guidelines. What Lawhern says is a fact. Perhaps the CDC should have consulted with Chagnon neurologist and pain management specialist first. I was trained 20 years ago. And 20 years ago, it was, I would say, the heyday of, of pain research, pain treatment, especially, I think, in California, where the state of California at that time had had recognized the idea that under treatment of pain, um, by withholding opioids or other measures, but specifically opioids in a particular landmark lawsuit, was grounds for uh, severe disciplinary measures against that doctor. And and so when I came up, I was educated at UCSF. I, I chose UCSF because so many of the principal figures in pain management 
were there, especially on the West Coast. This was probably the area that had the, the highest concentration of people who were contributing significantly to the basic research and clinical management of pain anywhere um, in the country. And, um, and, and it was at that time uh, where people were saying, look, we have underutilized this class of medication out of fear. Can we, can we show whether this group of medications can be used safely and effectively in people, um, not only who are uh, facing death from a terminal diagnosis, but who may, you know, be suffering from significant pain from a non-terminal diagnosis? Um, and, and that research started in the 90s, actually. And, and it had shown that yes, it could be safe and effective when, when the correct, um, guidelines were, were followed. As in, you monitored patients, you, you checked in with whether they were uh, responding appropriately to the medication, whether they were having significant side effects or, or they were showing signs of, um, abnormal dose escalation, all of those things. So I came into this field with feeling like that was a legitimate tool in my toolbox, certainly not my favorite, but not one that I shied away from. And, and what, what I think I and, and other people of my generation looked at is, is that if you do things correctly, you can certainly use these safely and effectively for a broad variety of kinds of pain the the notion that they didn't have effectiveness against neuropathic pain was disproven with a number of studies and certainly uh, all of our anecdotal experience they're not for everybody but no medication is and so my approach over time has been they're not my favorite drug to use because they come with so many potential complications especially now they're difficult to use more because of the pressures on us and the 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 political situation. Um, they're certainly not for everyone, but no drug is. They're not effective for everyone, but no drug is. Um, but they have a place. And to exclude them um, just because they're a certain kind of medication that has been associated with certain outcomes um, is not fair to people who actually could benefit from them and whose functionality may be significantly improved by using them. And so I've seen too many cases of people where their lives have been turned around using them. Their coworkers have no idea they're using them. Their family members, uh, some of them may not have any idea they're using them because they don't appear to be drugged. And that's what happens when you use these things successfully. You can use them without showing people that, you know, you're, you're high or you're, you know, you're in a stupor or anything like that. And so the, the unfortunate narrative now is that these things are, they're horrible. They're going to lead to this huge risk of bad outcomes. They're dangerous. There's, you know, the the cause the root cause of such evil in the society, it's it's all in context, and what's been lost is the context of their use. So, if you have somebody who knows what they're doing, you have somebody who's trained. We can use these things appropriately. Patients have been actively coming out against the CDC guideline and continue to make their voices heard by urging Congress and their representatives to demand that the CDC see its way out of a game in which it's not qualified to play. I personally reached out to both the CDC and FDA several times for comment, but they declined. 
basically, the CDC has gotten a whole bunch of feedback that they didn't want, but I think they can't ignore. When they come out, if they come out with the guidelines that they published on the interim basis, they're going to get so much flack in their tails from just about anybody with medical qualifications that Congress is finally going to have to sit up and notice and take some steps, possibly, this is a real long shot now because we're coming into a political season, it's possible that the the, uh, Congress will wake up and realize that CDC doesn't have any legal charter to write guidelines for medical practice except in communicable disease. And opioid addiction is not a communicable disease. So what they could do, and what patients increasingly are urging them to do, is they could write a piece of legislation that directs the CDC to get out of town on this mission. That basically says, you will repudiate the guidelines, and you will not replace them. And turn this thing back over to doctors to write their own standard and to develop a consensus position under some other kind of guidance. That's a long shot outcome, but it is a hope that I have. And I'm working actively to make it happen. And I think there are a large number of other people that are working actively. Dr. Lawhern, what happens to the DEA once the CDC bows out? The DEA might go on trying to ignore it, but if they do, they're going to wind up sued. In fact, there is a writ now before the U.S. Supreme Court asking that the court direct the DEA to develop and publish a consensus standard that represents the normal and usual use of opioids in medical practice, because there is no such standard. Whether the Supreme Court will act on that writ and actually make that direction, we don't know yet, but it is in process. Dr. Lahern, what are your final words on a resolution? The other thing that I guess I have to say is if we're going to have hope, I am hoping that the people who listen to your podcast and who see your work can be encouraged to contact their personal legislators. That means their federal senators, their representative, the speaker of their state uh, legislator, legislature, the state house if they have a house, or the state assembly if they have that, the governor's office, literally anybody who has an axe to grind in this field, contact them by phone, tell the staffer that you contact, you want that legislator to introduce evidence that forces the retraction of all legal restrictions on the use of opioids by doctors to manage pain. And that if they don't take that action, you're going to be very, very active in helping to elect their opponent in the next election. Uh, That's a language that if we have enough people do it, might get some really serious notice. But like I said, there's a lot of shouting voices out there. And people like me get a chance through medium like yours to do a little shouting in return and basically to try to say to people, legislators, what pain patients are going through now is madness. It is fraud. It is misrepresentation.
representation of science, and it has to stop right now. And you can make it happen. So that's my hope, is that people will be empowered to speak on their own behalf to the people who represent them in government and to say, you've got to, you've got to be the one to take this up. You've got to be the one to help save my life because my life is in danger because of bad policy. And because you've allowed some fools at the end of the CDC to be stupid about what they have, have taken on as national policy for treatment of pain. It's literally that messy. What we've learned and discovered from the past six episodes is that chronic pain affects around 50 million U.S. adults. And severe chronic pain affects approximately 18 million There are many different causes and types of chronic pain, but the end result is the same. People are hurting. Pain is real. Pain is real. Although chronic pain patients must take on the challenge of dealing with chronic pain, many of them were dealt another major blow and have come up against a stone wall when the group called PROP, not pain management physicians or astute in pain science, but physicians for the responsible prescribing of opioids, conferred with the CDC and together came up with the guideline for the prescribing of prescription opioids that was introduced in 2016. This guideline that was supposed to be used only as a guide for prescribing primary care doctors has taken on a life of its own and somehow managed to morph into law in a short period of time. What it changed into is a major pain in the assets of patients, prescribers, and their loved ones. When I say assets, I'm talking bodies, hearts, and minds. Livelihoods. A mere document and the organizations behind it, most of them federal, has single-handedly been responsible for the ruin of millions of lives, including the lives of doctors, pharmacists, and other prescribing clinicians, patients, and their families and loved ones. There have been hundreds of doctors sent to prison behind this guideline, and hundreds more stripped of their DEA registrations, threatened, and either leaving pain management altogether or living and working with anxiety over having to choose to let their patients down or possibly lose their clinical privileges. This guideline has been powerful enough to overpower mighty Big Pharma. Who would have thought? We've now seen Big Pharma sued for billions of dollars, scapegoated or not. Doesn't this mean less manufacturing of opioids in the future? and less money available for research and development that could be helpful with diseases like chronic pain? What about the FDA? Where do they stand? Well, although they oversee Big Pharma, they are not held responsible in the opioid fiasco. Have they spoken up, you may ask? Well, they quietly declined prop when they came knocking before they went to the CDC. They know the CDC guideline is misguided. The guideline is not supported by genuine data or science. 
The opioid crisis is a crisis that was created by drugs pushed to the streets. Mainly, fentanyl from China and heroin from Mexico. These drugs are hundreds of times more potent than prescription opioids that come from pharmaceutical manufacturers and therefore hundreds of times more deadly. It's the DEA's job to stop illicit drugs from being imported into the U.S., but they haven't been very successful. Why is that? We know that they have successfully put the majority of pain clinicians out of business, one way or another, with little to no problem. And with the backing of a misguided and harmful CDC guideline, Now that pain doctors have virtually disappeared and opioid prescriptions have declined by at least 40%, there are millions of pain patients suffering and feeling desperate and hopeless. This has created another crisis of overdose and deaths of pain patients that have gone to the streets to get pain relief. So although prescriptions for narcotics have declined, overdoses and deaths continue to climb. What is the solution to this troubling conundrum? The general consensus is continue to fight, strategize to win, call, write, or go to your personal legislators and demand that the CDC guideline be eradicated and that control of pain medicine be put back into the hands of pain specialists where it belongs and no one else. Use your voice Make it count. Have faith. In other words, play your position well. I'm Eve, and you've been listening to Chronic, the pain game.